Welcome to American Girlies, the podcast where Canadian historians read the American Girl novels. My name is Hamas Barwasser Soroka. And I'm Margot Mathieu. And I'm Sonia Ann. So today's American Girl novel is Kirsten's Surprise by Janet Beeler Shaw. It is a Christmas episode in July, uh, which feels like a nice little bit of Americana kitsch. There really isn't a lot in the way of plot, but I think it's a lot of interesting details that do go into it that make this something that we still can uh, talk about. Yes. So for a quick little one-minute summary, it's December in Minnesota, and Kirsten desperately wants those trunks out of storage from book one. She misses her doll, she misses all of her family's possessions, she misses having her own clothes, and most importantly, she wants to be able to celebrate St. Lucia's Day, which is the beginning of sort of the Swedish Christmas season, which takes place on December 13th, so she has to get these trunks before the 13th. So she starts asking her parents and her dad and her mom like, over and over again, like, can we get the trunks? Can we get the trunks? Can we get the trunks? And it's no, no, no. We have other things to do. But finally, her dad says, okay, I'm going to go get the trunks from the general store where they've been in storage. And she says, I'm going to come with you. They are delayed by a blizzard on the return journey from the general store. But luckily, Kirsten is able to lead the horse through the knee-high snow, and they're able to shelter in a cave overnight. Once the snow subsides, they make it back right at dawn on December 13th, and she's able to take out all of her stuff from Sweden from the trunks and put together a St. Lucia's Day surprise. Merry Christmas, everyone. End scene. That is exactly how this novel goes. There's not much. There's not a ton of historical context you need for this one, but I do want to still do a quick little historical context section just to cover our bases a little bit. You know, this book does give some insight into, okay, what would it be like to live in a wooden house kind of set away from a lot of conveniences or even things like having a general store, right, where they have to travel out of their way to go back into town if they need supplies or those sorts of things. And it discusses the types of work that might have been done around these types of houses, especially after the harvest had been done. So they're mending fences, they're mending the buildings, that kind of thing. Otherwise, the only historical context that sort of matters here is Christmas in America and what that looks like. Because in the first half of the 19th century, it is a very different holiday than what we would think about it as today. So obviously the religious holiday has existed for centuries, but as we've discussed in previous episodes in the Baba Yaga podcast, in the U.S. it went through periods of being outlawed, and in other cases it would be for those who celebrated a reveling holiday, so it was a lot about let's get drunk and 
eat a bunch of food and make noise and go door to door demanding snacks. So it's not a national holiday in this book. And you have plenty of people who don't celebrate it at all in especially the early 19th century. There are some changes over time. Uh, like in 1819, Washington Irving published the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon. And it's a series of essays that describe this like wealthy British landlord who invites his farm workers over for Christmas to share in a holiday meal. And like, this is a Let's bring back the old ways, right? In 1823, you have The Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore, which is the poem that is still quite popular to this day about St. Nicholas visiting the home, bringing presents for children. The first Christmas trees in America are documented in the 1830s when German immigrants came over and displayed them, and you have Christmas cards by the 1840s. And this is also the time where we see Christmas go from this like reveling holiday to a family focused spending time with your family in your own home. You're not going door to door getting drunk anymore. So in this book, right, Kirsten is living in a country where this is a more celebrated holiday than it had previously been in America. And she's kind of living in that crossroads of when it goes from being this sort of controversial holiday to being a like family friendly gather around the fire and eat cookies sort of day. As for St. Lucia Day, it's been celebrated in Sweden since at least 1764, when this is the first recorded instance of this type of celebration, where you have typically one of the girls in the family dressing up in white and having a crown of evergreens on her head with candles. You light the candles, and the idea is that she's supposed to, you know, bring light into this dark season. And I think that's really all the historical context that we need for this book, because that's pretty much all that happens. So what do you guys think of this? Now that we've gone through the historical context. I've given a little summary. What did you think of the book? This one was really interesting to me because I think we've touched on this in our off the mic discussion, but this is the book in which Kirsten gets the most to do, but it's also the book in which the it's least also like the only one where she has desires or motivations. And it's also the one where she is the worst. So like, I feel like there's a lot of layers happening here. I had the weird experience of swinging wildly between Kirsten's family is the worst and Kirsten specifically is the worst because all of their worldly possessions are in a series of trunks that are now at the general store. They've been there for months, six months, something like since that. summertime. They've been there a very long time. Nobody's made any effort to like spare one of the boys who are like Lars is old enough to take the horse to town for a day in October. Lars, Lars. Bless him. Also, like, if it's if they're at the general store six months, like, you have to go and get stuff. Like, how much salt do they have in this cabin they just moved into? And they're talking about, like, having to smoke meat and stuff for the winter. They're not salting anything? They don't need to go to the store for other stuff? How small is their wagon? How big are these trunks? They're also talking about making these Christmas buns 
at the beginning of the book and they're making them with cinnamon and all these spices. And these spices have been part of European Christmas celebrations for a very long time, but they are import goods in Europe and they are extra import goods in Minnesota territory. Like These are not people foraging their own cinnamon bark for the Christmas buns in the Minnesota territory. Um, All of that had to come from somewhere and probably they had to pay a premium for stuff like cinnamon, which is kind of a fine spice at this time. Yeah, but they don't have any money to have their stuff shipped. They don't have any time to go to the store and get these things that have been sitting there. Like, I'm just, I'm... I'm deeply confused about the logistics of this book and like I get it for a plot point and I guess maybe to point out to children that like getting stuff and material goods was not as easy in this period but and yet their lives are perfectly furnished right so like Olaf and his wife whose name I don't remember Inga I forget her name but but the aunt and uncle characters they're also living a frontier lifestyle, and yet somehow they not only have a spare cottage on the, their land, their question mark land, <laughs> see previous episodes for details, but they also have enough to provide Kirsten and her mom with extra quilted petticoats to provide Kirsten's brothers. I mean, maybe Lars is the size of an adult man, but Peter is a toddler with winter clothing and boots. Uh, there's enough plates and bread pans and pots for two households. And one of the moments in the first book that was so cathartic was when Kirsten's mother, for the first time in the entire journey, has a bit of a meltdown and says, but this is everything I own. These are all my mother's bread pans. This is everything to me. And the father says, well, we'll send for it when we can. And now it's six months later, she's not still sad about her belongings for i mean or she is but refuses to 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 push her husband um and but somehow there's just enough there's like weird latent threats with the father too like if you keep asking me i'll get angry yeah like what mr larson does not come off well in this story (laughs) again the wild experience of swinging between mr larson is a jerk he is the worst papa sucks in this book uh, for not organizing his family's move. Um, and then also Kirsten is just awful because she will not let it go. She won't stop asking about her dolly. She won't stop asking about, can we get the cart today? What about tomorrow? What about the day after tomorrow? Although I do have to say, I feel like as annoying as that was, there was also the part of me that was like, oh my god, this girl finally has something resembling a personality, some kind of motivation, and she's not okay with absolutely everything going on around her. Because I'm like, if I was nine years old, and all my worldly possessions were being stored at the general store, and for six months my dad was just like, nah, we we don't need to get those. That's not important. I would also probably be like, so today, right? Tomorrow? day after tomorrow like let's come on let's go and this is a thing I noticed where she has this discussion with her mother where her mother she says well why don't you and I go get the cart we don't have anything better to do today and her mother says "Poor lady arms (laughs) yeah her mother says we're girls we're not strong enough and that's just 
fine and accepted. And I think if you were to rewrite this they're story not today, working on a farm. No, they're weak. They just need bread all day, which doesn't produce any kind of muscle mass whatsoever. No, not at all. They're fine ladies doing needlework and absolutely nothing else. They're definitely not carrying pails of milk and assisting with like no, no, the, no, like hay crops and stuff. No, they're not helping. They're not lifting anything. They are delicate little gentlewomen. But moreover. Kirsten just accepts this, and I think if you rewrote this story today, she would take off on her own and show that she is strong enough because girl power and she can do it. And in this book, it's just, oh, you're right, we're not strong enough. I guess I will wait until my noble patriarch tells me that it's okay for me to want things. Well, so, and I'm, I'm kind of shocked by that element because it is the mid-80s. And you do have the whole, like, girl boss thing, at least in cinema, right, in the 80s, where we have Terminator and all of the, like, working girl, nine to five, like, all of those movies where it's like, no, you're not going to treat me like shit because I'm a woman or, like, the girls are strong and can defeat interstellar and interdimensional intertemporal robot monsters like you know like it's it's a time and and alien there's interstellar ones this is a period of like the in the zeitgeist are, are strong almost masculine presenting women in some of these cases right in the action movies where it's like i i'm shocked that a a media that is purporting to be for educating girls and for showing girls like american girls have been like you know, these strong forces of good for all of American history, and yet then say, like, no, you can't lift a trunk in the era of, like, Dolly Parton. I mean, Dolly Parton is for everybody, but Terminator and Aliens and all of this, that's not little girl entertainment. You only get into the kind of girl power stuff later, like, we're in the transition moment between a kind of feminine, idyllic childhood <laughs> and a childhood in which you're already working on your college applications at this point. So, and this is also why in the last one, Kirsten hates school and isn't good at it. I think if the book were written a decade later, she would be just as good at math as the boys and she would love school and she would be super into it because girls can do whatever they put their minds to. But at this point, I think in children's literature, girls, including frontier girls, are still delicate. Sweet and obedient to their parents and I think this is part of why I just dislike this book so much and I really really dislike this one uh is a kind of didactic brochure that you would get at Sunday school like it had light fundy vibes to it all of this discussion of how are we going to bless our parents for Christmas and we have to learn patience and you don't get to go until Papa says you can go. There's this whole moment where Kirsten's hardest dilemma is whether she tells her dad about a cave that she's not supposed to know about. And then he says, did you disobey your mother to go explore the cave? And she says, yes, I did. And he said, well, it's come in handy this one time. But I think you're right that it is this like weird, almost didactic yeah, it feels wildly didactic, and it feels heavily didactic in a religious sense. 
and a kind of moral religious worldview. But at the same time, I, I think it, it's similar to how you were talking about this is this period of transition, right? Where it does feel like the first half of the book is like, we're not strong enough to lift the trunks and like, we just have to listen to Papa and like, everything will be fine. But then the second half of the book is, well, we took the sleigh and now Papa has twisted his knee. So Kirsten, the nine-year-old girl, must lead the horse through the snow that's like up to her waist. And also the fact that she was disobedient to her parents and was exploring this cave is the reason they survive. So it's this very disjointed moral messaging that you're getting here. And I think that was sort of a, a strange read where I'm thinking, okay, a kid is reading this. What is what? What lesson are they supposed to learn here? Is it obey your parents at all times, but also if you do, you might end up dead in a snowstorm? Like, am I supposed to hear girls are too weak to lift a trunk, but also girls are strong enough to wade through the snow in a blizzard to lead the horse well, and the cart? Well, she's strong enough when it's in service of her patriarchal yes. overlord, right? She's strong enough to help Papa, but not strong enough to disobey Papa. I don't think that's the actual explanation, but that's just the vibe I got. It's like a strange dissonance within the narrative, I think. <laughs> so this is not like necessarily along the lines of like what we're talking about with the patriarchy, but it does feel like the story would be one where if I read it again, it would be like like so many of the Harry Potter books or... I don't know, there has to be other examples of this, but where you're watching where you're watching a movie or you're reading something that like you've seen before and you're like, man, if you just didn't do this one stupid thing, uh, this whole story could have been avoided. And the stupid thing is that they had to have had downtime, like they arrived in spring, in the beginning of spring. They put all their trunks away and they get there and they're setting up house. There can't be that much to do on the farm in the middle of summer. Go to town then when you're getting your cinnamon and whatever, the, the potatoes or that you didn't plant. Because like, that's the other thing is that like, yeah, there's just there's a downtime in the summer where there wouldn't be all of this work and now they're sitting there like oh well, we can't go and do this until the very last minute because we have to get all of these fences mended and we have to get all of the the holes in the walls filled in and we have to get all of this stuff done yes um it's there's not actually that much to do on a farm in the middle of summer papa could have just gone and gotten the stuff then but he decided to wait until the last second and he almost killed himself and his daughter because he's an idiot. And so this whole story could have been avoided if everyone had just listened to this dumb little nine-year-old girl and gone and gotten the stuff in the middle of the summer when she wanted it. I don't have a lot of faith in Anders Larson. I don't think that we should be listening to him. <laughs> no. No, I don't think he's worth listening to. His advice is unilaterally terrible. Be patient, but have heart. What does that mean? Be obedient, but follow your dreams. What? I this book is is incoherent. Yeah. The emotional core is supposed to be that this is a father-daughter bonding exercise, but they spend most of their time 
just being cold and bickering. Yeah, I feel like she bonds way more with the mother who is like, people are more important than things. But then Kirsten's like, but we can remember people through these objects that they give us. And this is actually a another point about this story that I wanted to make is that this book addresses that sort of immigration experience in a way that the other books have really glossed over, right? Like book one, okay, we've lost all our stuff, but I'm an American girl now. And then book two is just racism, genocide, just gloss right over that. And I mean, yeah, she's struggling to learn English, but then (laughs) she learns English by the end, so it doesn't matter anymore. This book I actually found at least reflective of that experience, and it acknowledges the way that these sorts of transitions worked, right? Like early in the book, Kirsten has to explain the concept of St. Lucia's Day to her cousins, Lisbeth and Anna, and they, they talk about how her cousins were born in America, so they were not necessarily having all these same things, doing these same things. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily super realistic, given that Lisbeth and Anna's parents are also Swedish, but I I can see using that as the sort of, okay, she's hearkening back to where she came from, which makes sense because she's lived in America for six months and like actually is very excited to do this cultural thing from her homeland. And I think that's a nice little thing to center it on and actually talk about, like you said, Margot, where she's saying to her mom, like, we have these things from home and that helps us to remember home. And like, when they unpack all the trunks at the end, her mom actually is really excited to have all of their like home goods from Sweden again, where they can like feel more comfortable and at home. And I thought that that was at least somewhat more reasonable as compared to what we've seen in the first two books where it's just like, well, any identity you had before this, gone. Throw it away. This is America. Rah! Yes, but also these cousins would have known about Oh, it's Saint 100% Lucia. contrived by the plot so that we can explain it to yeah. the child reading it. But I did appreciate at least the, the attempt at like, oh. But they have this whole setup about how the emigration from Sweden means we're never seeing any of these people ever again. And that's just not the case. Yeah. I mean, historically, a lot of people wouldn't go back. Like if you go to America and you take root and you have a successful farm, that's enough of a year round operation that you're probably not going back. But a lot of people went back because it failed. Like a lot of people there's a really great emigration museum in Hamburg that specifically talks about many, many people got to America. It didn't go well for them. They came home. Or they talk about how they got to America. It did go well for them. And so they sent for their elderly parents because they didn't want to be separated. So that feels like a kind of that thing that you were talking about, Sonia, where abandon your past we can never go back there yeah oh actually in theory we could and in practice people did well that and there's there's multiple different kinds of immigration that isn't addressed i don't think in any of these books where some family members might stay and build start building community in a place Um, And other family members would cycle in and out of that place to help with production and send money back to wherever they were or 
send products or whatever back and then they themselves would go back and it was like a seasonal or annual kind of like almost triangular shift um in canada in particular this was really popular for like italians who would travel like to um either to major cities or to the great plains and do agricultural work or whatever work and then to south america for a year and then back to italy like there's a bunch of different ways that immigration works and some people end up staying and building those like what we think of now as immigrant communities and some people are like transient and moving so there is always the option that like lars goes back in a couple years for a certain amount of time and maybe his sisters go with him and like find a husband and come back or like there's so many different ways that immigration could work that the idea that like well now we never see grandma again is uh, unlikely even on the frontier and it it feeds into the thing that i most objected to about this book which is just how propagandistic it was about this idea of america as a promised land where everything works out and all the immigrants are happy and they all stay forever and they all blend their beautiful traditions into the American melting pot. And we all celebrate St. Lucia day because we are a (laughs) Christian nation. And that, and that's all, I mean, it's not explicit in the looking back, but the looking back section opens with, Uh, immigrants to America would celebrate Christmas at the culmination of the year because they'd had a good harvest, they had good neighbors, they had a good community around them. Everything was going great. And so Christmas was their opportunity to kind of chill out for a day. Christmas is how Americans thank God for capitalism. Didn't you know this? (laughs) Well, and then this is the way it closes is what a blessing it was to celebrate Christmas in America, which is no, I mean, that's I'm sure that's how many Christian immigrants where things were going really great felt. There are non-Christian immigrants in the 1850s who are absent entirely here. There are immigrants who are not celebrating Christmas in December. There are, especially on like Plains territories, there are immigrants coming from parts of the world, you know, from like yeah, from Eastern Europe, who aren't celebrating on the 24th, 25th it's also, December. And it's also, yeah, this idea that people are celebrating Christmas to celebrate America. And I just don't think that's how most people would have conceptualized a religious holiday, right? Like, this is before the time where anyone is like, yeah, like, you know, you get the argument that like Christmas is a secular holiday now. And I'm like, okay, you can say that, but definitely not in the 1850s. Like, Well, but it's kind of making the argument that it is because it talks about yeah. how some families who lived in town would go to church and they would do activities and they'd take a couple days off. But if you worked on a farm, they have this yeah. wild line sidebar where they say the Larsons wouldn't have been able to take a whole month to celebrate Christmas <laughs> as they had in Sweden. The Larsons were also farmers in Sweden. Like, is this some kind of, these lazy cheese-eating Europeans with their six-week vacation for Christmas? I don't understand. Yeah. But um, they have a whole thing about how, yes, if you lived in a town, you would have a church, and you would go to church, and you would go to services. But if you lived outside of town, because of the snow, it was often too difficult to get into church. So you would just celebrate in the home. So they're starting to make this argument that, because of the vast distances 
and the difficult weather conditions, which are not present in Sweden at all no, whatsoever. No, no. <laughs> Christmas is no longer Sweden, a church no holiday. It's, it's easy, sunny winters. Famously, the Caribbean of Scandinavia. <laughs> well, so here's the thing, right, that I think it, it's also doing here, um, which isn't so much of an argument for history as much as it is an argument for contemporary late 20th century America, which is that all of these things that ostensibly were religious and Christian are now just American culture. And you should be doing them regardless of your immigrant background. Now there is not a saint-based Christmas holiday. Like, you can just do the, like, American things. Like, the, the other girls didn't need to do St. Lucia's Day because... They had learned Amer- American American Christmas. I don't know what that means other than those Coca-Cola ads with the polar bears. Yeah. And I will say, as someone from an immigrant community who moved to Canada, and we would fully just do two Christmases. We had Canadian Christmas, where it's Christmas tree, like Santa Claus, reindeer, whatever. And then January 6th is like, okay, but like religious holiday. So like... What what I'm getting is why weren't they doing both? Because I feel like a lot of people immigrate and are just like, we'll just do both. Like we can have St. Lucia's Day and Christmas, but in the world of this book, they're like, no, pick one. Yes, and I say this as somebody, and I all of these points about the Christian hegemony of it all come from me, somebody who is not Christian. Uh, I am Jewish. I was raised Jewish, but my mother's family is Catholic. And so we did Christmas and we did specifically German Christmas. Right. So, I mean, I've had the experience where my Jewish family does a Christmas on the 24th of December uh, with our beautifully decorated Christmas tree. And if it overlaps with Hanukkah, we serve latkes and we do a big North American turkey and all the European cabbage sides that we grew up loving. And so... I'm not against the cultural amalgamation or the idea that, you know, lots of people can appreciate a holiday that isn't actually part of their religion and enjoy it and celebrate it. I do hate this thing that, well, every Christmas is the default in this book. And this brings me to my sort of big question about the book, which is in 1986, who is American Girls for? Because now it's for everybody. It's for all girlies and also all non-girlies, right? Mm -hmm. With this first range of dolls in 1986, who is this? Who is Kirsten for? Who is this story for? And I think that Christmas as American culture has more broad reaching, like if you carry this idea to its, its end in 1980s politics it has a broader reach than just what we do at the holidays it's saying that these protestant christian values are american values and if you don't hold these specific values that's not american that's i think is the argument that while there's not a whole lot of substance to this book um if we do just sort of focus on this weird kind of christmas aspect of it that's what you tease out of it is that to immigrate and be American, to become American, you need this weird just acceptance of 
these like strange 19th century versions of Christian values uh, that I don't think are necessarily historically accurate. Like I think that a lot of what comes up in these books ends up being sort of a, a much later idea of Christianity, but like that, that is so very much late 20th century, especially going into like modern American politics that like no American is, America is a Christian nation. You don't have to be Christian to be here, but you need to have these values. You need to adopt them into whatever your religious or cultural ideas are. You don't have to talk about the divinity of Christ all the time, but you have to believe that the Bible is has inherent truths or whatever. And it's well, and you have to be subscribing to the Protestant work ethic and you have to be subscribed, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I think it is worth so like pointing out. Traditional family values. <laughs> Papa gets to decide when we do stuff. Yeah. Even if he's an idiot who wants us to die in a snowstorm. But also it's worth pointing out that all of the American girl novels have a Christmas story until Kaya, who is the first one ever who is not a Christian. Because she's an indigenous girl from a pre-colonization period. When does Kaya come out? She is first released in 2002. I did not grow up reading these books. But now, looking at when they're releasing characters, I think it is an interesting look at like the zeitgeist of this period, right? Like, who are we going to release as the American girl in any given time frame? It takes us fully 15 years to get a non-Christian one. Yeah. And it's not that she belongs to another Abrahamic faith or another faith. You know, she, the way she, her religious culture is depicted, and I say this as somebody who had that doll, we can talk about it when we get to her books, <laughs> is this kind of like Mother Willow, gently spiritual. Uh. She doesn't actually believe anything that directly contradicts Christianity in an explicit way. She's just not Christian. And we don't get her until after Mattel buys American Girl. Mattel buys American Girl in 1998. Ah, and so she's a full okay. four years after that of them trying to, because they're, they're Barbie. And that was their big period of trying to rebrand Barbie, rebrand what Mattel means, all of that stuff. And so this falls into like a much larger story of the toy market in America at the turn of the millennium, which we can get into later. Um, but I do think that it is important to take a moment to think about like the 1980s, the rise of evangelicalism and the idea that America is a Christian nation and it is this vague, weird kind of Christianity of mega churches and for-profit church organizations uh, that I think fits neatly into this thing. Maybe we're reaching a little bit, but also this book is giving absolutely nothing. <laughs> so now I think it's time for us to rate this very, very bland American girly book. So I think our rating system today is going to be how many uh, lit candles on a headpiece do you give it out of five possible St. Lucia candles? I'm going to give it three just because it's not actively hurting anyone and I would let a child read it. I think it should be in a collection of books that include people from 
other faith backgrounds and whatever, but in and of itself on its own, I don't think is like actively harmful. It's just odd and boring. And I would hope that a child I was interacting with would be interesting enough to be like, this is a dull book and I don't want to read it. <laughs> but it's not it's not like doing a genocide or anything. So yeah, to, to be perfectly clear, our rating system is not about how much we personally enjoyed the book, although that obviously factors in. It's more about, is this book a valuable tool for historical teaching for children? And on that basis, I guess, yeah, I have to give it a three out of five. But in terms of my personal enjoyment, oh, no, God, it was awful. <laughs> I'm giving it one candle that is dying. I'm giving it a candle upside down in a bowl of water. But um, three out of five for the history. Sure. I'm going to have to agree and also give it three out of five because, again, no genocide in this one. And there actually were some little instances where I thought, OK, this is some decent history. We have a nice little scene of how would Kirsten Kirsten dress warmly while she's wearing quilted petticoats and a shawl and two layers of wool stockings and description of the general store and that kind of thing. So yeah, three out of five, I would give it to a child. I would let a kid read this. Yeah, I said this off the mic, I think, but I would let a child read it. But if they tried to read it to me, I would leave the room. (laughs) And on that happy note, this has been American Girlies. American Girlies is a production of the Baba Yaga Project. The podcast is produced by Sam Lee Raymond and hosted by Sonia M., Margot Mathieu, and Hannah sparwasser Suoka. Our music is composed and performed by Esther Ruth Teal. This episode was edited by Hannah sparwasser Suoka and mixed by Margot Mathieu. This podcast is brought to you by Patreon supporters just like you. If you would like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash babayagaproject for bonus content and extra goodies. We are at babayagaproject on Twitter and at the Baba Yaga Project on TikTok and Instagram. Thanks, girlies! <laughs>